There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real-life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo, and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. All right, Craig, how are you? Welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Hey, Nick, thanks very much for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and, and again, the guests you have are, are amazing, and, and I'm uh, just happy to be in that company. I love it. I love it. So why don't we just jump right into it? And let's go back to the very beginning. How did you get into the food service industry? Sure. I think similar to a lot of people, it, it started with uh, um, the need for money and and the easiest way to get that in kind of high school and college oftentimes was uh, walking through the back door of a restaurant. And, and I, sure. I did that. I bust tables um, in high school. I had my own lawn mowing business and that was actually better money. And I, I think I bust tables for about four days before I figured out <laughs> that was really difficult. I mean, I wasn't old enough to wait tables, so I, I didn't come back to that in, until college. Um, but in college, you know, I, I couldn't mow lawns. And so uh, being a waiter um, was much better money. And, uh, you know, basically when you needed money, you could uh, pick up additional shifts. And there was always somebody willing to uh, give up their shift because they had something better to do. So I, I took advantage of that. Um, not really thinking it would be a career, quite honestly, but, uh, you know, it was, it was good money. And then... Um, as I was about to graduate, I, I kind of had a couple a couple job opportunities. One was in sales, which I kind of had felt drawn to, and the other one was to be a manager of a pizza hut, um, oh, working right. for PepsiCo at the time. And uh, as I told the story to all my you know friends and certainly my mom and dad and relatives and everybody else, they kind of looked at me like, "What in the world? You just you know you're about to graduate. You've got a degree." what would you do that for? And uh, the story I would tell him was pretty simple. It's like, I, I was in an entrepreneurship class with this guy who graduated with high honors and he went to work for him. So surely there must be something to it. And, and, and the long story short is after I got into it, there was a bunch of people that were sort of in my same position and they were managing one and two and $3 million P and L's at you know, 22 years old and they had 60 employees sure. and all these things. And I thought, wow, what a, what a great way to get that experience early on. And I never really saw the, the lack of, you know, sort of glamour that's involved in managing a, you know, a, a fast food restaurant. It wasn't until it was pointed out to me by my friends and, and girlfriend at the time and different things that I came home and I smelled like pizza um, that I knew that anything was different other than, you know, running a, running a million five business. Um, and so that's kind of how I got into it. And then you know, after a couple of years of that, uh, we were about to get married and we kind of, we sat down, my wife and I, or my future wife and said, you know, this is probably not going to be sustainable running an operations business, you know, doing this for, for much longer. And, and the long-term play was, you know, in a year or two, I would get to run a territory that was, you know, significantly larger, 10, 15, 20 stores. And I was fortunate at the time that somebody came and, and helped me. And, and the way that this gentleman helped me was he said, Craig, you're doing a great job really love what you're doing and another 10 to 12 years of this and you will be ready for the next level and at that moment i realized that's exactly what i needed and i'm going to go do something different because i can't do this for 10 to 12 more years um or i don't think i'll end up getting married and i certainly won't have a family so <laughs> um 
so yeah, then I, I looked at, you know, getting into um, something different in food service and ultimately uh, became a DSR um, and, and was a DSR and realized from there that I really wanted to be on the manufacturer side. And so mm-hmm. a couple years later, um, got a manufacturer role. But I, I think not an atypical story of a, how a lot of us get into food service, you know, sort of through the, the service aspect of it. And, and um, that's been a fantastic, you know, uh, experience for me through, throughout. I'm glad I did it. So. Right. Who were you a DSR for? Uh, at the time, it was White Swan, but they were just becoming U.S. Foods. Um, okay. So that whole aggregation of companies, you know, then they bought Sexton. And just at about that time is when I got um, got the opportunity to move on to the manufacturer side. But yeah, it was uh, it was U.S. Foods. And, and it was, you know, it was interesting. It, that was quite different in that you had, you know, freedom. You had a territory and, um, you know, you, you're called on restaurants and and. And what was interesting being young and married and, and, you know, not having a lot of money is you developed friendships, you know, and partly built on who would feed you lunch, um, you know, or, or something like that, because the money for the first couple of years was, was not good. And that was another thing that kind of led me to, hmm, I think I need something a little more than commission based um, to make this work. But yeah, that's uh, right. That's what I worked for. And how long were you a DSR for? Two years. But if I'm super honest, and this is nothing against DSRs, because I, you know, I know a lot of them, and a lot of them are still my sure. friends from way back when. It took me about three months to figure out that that was not the part of the food service business for me, and so yeah. it took me about another, you know, twenty months to get on the manufacturer side. But um, it was pretty evident from from the get go that I had, you know, I'd stepped out of operations, but I had stepped into something different. And and again, you know, critical element of our of our industry vertical, but. I really saw what sort of brokers and manufacturers did, mm-hmm. and that really appealed to me. I, I could relate to that, you know, much more, and and uh, you know, and and some of the brands that I'd gotten the opportunity to sell as a DSR um, were really compelling. You know, the, the Campbell Soups of the world, um, mm-hmm. the Best Foods, the Hellmans, you know, a lot of those, the Hormels. There were just some really neat and unique things going on in the industry. And and funny enough, one of the things I remember most about um, that time was that was about the time that the stealth fry came out, um, mm-hmm. you know, which was coating on uh, the fry that made it last longer, and and that was this big innovation. And I thought, wow, how cool would it be to to get into to potatoes and do that, you know? And obviously, foreshadowing twenty years later, but uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so that that was uh, that was kind of my journey to to that point. And then, you know, I got um, I got the opportunity to go to work for a company called CPC at the time, Corn Products Corporation, which was the predecessor to Best Foods. Um, and Best Foods was, and Corn Products was Argo and Caro and Hellman's and Knorr and, um, and all those things and some really great brands. And, and that was a, a unique experience in that you went out every day and you knew you had, for the most part, um, some of the best value and, and highest quality brands. And that was really neat. And you know, as we transitioned out of sort of Argo and Caro, because those were really more commodity items, I really found my my footing um, and, and my passion and, and what I was really good at selling, which was you know value and brands, and then and that just kind of propelled me into into the next next stages of my career. So um, I think you know at that time because food will be a central point of this this whole um, journey as it's been a central point of my life. What I loved sure. about um, Best Foods at the time is you know we had these great frozen soups and we had salad dressings and all these and these were. I would bring these things home and, and, you know, my wife thought I was crazy because there was two of us and we would have gallons of salad dressing, you know, that were, um, you know, in our refrigerator that we could use and, and you know, save money. And it was really you know neat. Uh, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so uh, 
but again, it was great products. And that was kind of the basis of which, um, you know, I really enjoyed what I did. So, uh, yeah. And, and so then, you know, we kind of moved on from that and, um, Unilever acquired best foods. And, um, that was my first, I guess, interesting element of change in the industry. And, and, you know, it was, it was an interesting, but scary time. And it was interesting because, you know, there was this, this corporate takeover situation that was happening. Mm-hmm. It was right kind of around the time the, the, the dot-com, you know, sort of bust was happening and all that. My wife worked in technology, so we had experienced that. And so, you know, that for me was like, oh, wow, you know, this is happening in the food business. And, and through some very bizarre circumstances, ultimately the Unilever North American business became the driver of, of the food service business in North America. And actually it was supposed to be the other way around, but there was some, like I said, some very unique circumstances that happened. And so, you know, this, this large contingent of Unilever um, team came in and, and a large con- contingent of Canadians because they really had a phenomenal food service business. And that was my first exposure to a different culture and, and not that Canada is a different culture, but a different business culture, right? And, and it was just a different way of doing business and looking at things. And, you know, I was fortunate to be exposed to a lot of things, you know, and many of which were scary because I went from this expert sort of uh, area manager and regional manager, what I was doing to, I knew nothing about the way that, you know, that, that Unilever was selling. Not And, and that was, for me, felt really... Um, really scary because again I, I thought I was it was an expert and then now all of a sudden I'm not and and uh, you know as, as I started to understand the culture of the way they did things more ultimately that I was able to see the value in some of the things that they did particularly working really closely with operators and, and really trying to understand the the tension that happens you know in a in a business in a restaurant you know when labor's tight or mm-hmm. when products are, are, are a problem and all those kind of things so that sort of took me into the next stage of of my career so and how long did you stay at unilever for well all together with cpc best foods and unilever mm-hmm. i was there 21 years and you know it's it's interesting because even then again being surrounded by sort of technology people that i was with with my wife's friends and, and all of our friends you know i thought two three years you know four or five years would be a lifetime and those kind of things and i was just fortunate to get to do a lot of different things over that period of time that made it interesting, that it drove a lot of growth for me, you know, and, and took us, gosh, all over the US and, and ultimately internationally and um, and back. And so there was just a lot of neat things that occurred um, in that 21 years. Um, so, yeah. I'm sure. It sounds like, you, I mean, you, you got a lot of experience. I mean, from when you started busing tables to working at Pizza Hut to CPC Unilever, you learned so much. I mean, you even learned about you know the, the the Canadian way of doing business. When you look back on your time to to where you are here today, is there somebody that helped you along the way, or did you have mentors, or yeah, someone who helped you along the way? Sure, there's. I mean, there's several. I mean, and and I probably the biggest one um, for me um, actually occurred sort of mid career. And, and that's when I went over overseas, I worked out of the Netherlands for four years. So after we were acquired, um, I got to work in some, some global teams and then took over the East division of the U S and ultimately because of my experience working on some global projects, I got the opportunity to, to go work on the global leadership team for customer development for Unilever. So that was four years in the Netherlands. And, and most of that time, my manager um, was a gentleman named Robert Guillet, 
who actually runs a very large uh, um, uh, American food business in France or an American sort of icon food business in France. But anyway, he really, and at the time I would be honest and say, I don't, I didn't see him so much as a mentor, as somebody that was really challenging and in a very um, gracious sort of way, Robert was sort of like the father of, of, of food service globally. For, for Unilever at the time. And, and, you know, nobody could outwork Robert. Um, you know, he was tireless, he was caring, he was passionate. Um, but one of the things that, that Robert really, really challenged and, and taught me was, was the idea of simplicity. Um, you know, you, and I can still hear him, you have to make things extremely simple, extremely simple. And, and, you know, that's important anywhere, but in, in a, an organization where you've got 2,500 selling people spread across, across the globe, um, it's even more important, you know, how you translate that language wise is one thing, but how you make the message very simple um, is an entirely different thing. And, and that really sticks with me today. The other element, and it's, it's, it's built on simplicity, but, you know, communication and you always, I think, as the leader have to look at how your message is being received and then first point the finger at yourself to say, is there something I did or didn't say or a a way that I should have communicated that the message would have been received better. And, and certainly when you're in a position of authority, I mean, you, it's easy to say, well, you didn't listen. And I just think that's the wrong approach. And I think Robert modeled that really well, which is, you know, we would have these meetings after our, you know, we would go all over the globe and launch different initiatives and we would sit down afterwards and talk about what went right and wrong. And most of it was what went wrong and, and how do we make it better? Uh, and so I, I learned that, you know, that simplicity piece, but also then the simplicity in, in communication, uh, was just key. And so, uh, you know, I, I'll always remember that from, from Robert. And then the second thing was, or the third thing, I guess, was really around just the art of negotiation and not negotiation in terms of the win-loss piece or you gain business or you lose business, but just the amount of work and preparation and, and scenario modeling and worst case scenario, you know, and all these kinds of things and approaching it from so many different ways. And, and so what that brought for me was this whole idea of, of diversity of thought, you know, you hear diversity quite a bit and, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a buzzword in all the good and bad ways, but what really I got the opportunity with a company like Unilever, you know, other big multinationals is diversity was evident in the business. You know, you, you just look at the nationalities I worked with in, in Rotterdam for four years and it was everything you can imagine. Right. And so what was cool about that was just, it was always neat to see the different ways people, you know, looked at, at things. And so as I look at diversity today, and it's in a much different way because of where we are and, and the company we are, um, it's always about making sure you have the sharpest, uh, plan, the sharpest strategy, the sharpest message, but you can only do that if you've had lots of people from di di uh, diverse points of view helping you through that. Because otherwise it just, it's, it's amazing how homogenous things become, you know, when you've got a team that's not diverse. So. Absolutely. After your four years in the Netherlands with Robert, how did you come back to the United States? What did that look like? So that was an interesting point is, and, and kind of an inflection point in my career as, you know, when, when you go on an expat assignment, typically companies say, we guarantee you'll come back. We don't guarantee you a role. Right. And so kind of going back to that scenario modeling, you know, we said, what's the worst case scenario for us as a family, you know, 
there's not a role when I come back, but we've done a, you know, had this fantastic experience as a family and, and that proved to be the case. But as, as I was looking for my role coming back and ultimately one surfaced, but it was at that point I, I started to think, well, should I be looking outside of, of Unilever? And it wasn't because anything wrong with Unilever. It was more, I had had to, I'd had the opportunity and the privilege, but also the challenge of having discussions with people that were more senior in their career than I was over time. And, and a lot of those discussions revolved around people that just wanted to do the job they'd done, but they hadn't continued to grow their skill set. And, and as we all know, you know, the job you do today requires something different tomorrow than it did yesterday. And even at your age, if you're not a different person next year, you're not going to be successful as you were. And so I, I, I looked at that and said, you know, I love what I do. I love the company. Um, I love the people, but I don't know that there's a path for me and there's not a path for me to continue to grow. Um, there's probably a path for me to continue to work here, but can I be excited about that? Can I add value? Can I grow personally? And, and um, you know, ultimately I got a job and I came back here and it was a great another five years when I came back. But it was at that point the seed was planted that, um, you know, I needed to think about how I would continue to grow and add value wherever I was in the organization. And so that, you know, continued on and, until 2017 um, when I ultimately uh, left Unilever. So, sure. Yeah. When you left in 2017, is, is Idaho in the next stop that you made? It is. It is. Um, you know, very fortunate again to work for a large company. And one of the things I'd seen in Europe was this whole, in fact, I saw one posted on LinkedIn today, this idea of a sabbatical. And I'm like, sure. as an American, you're like, what does that even mean? You know, yeah. like, <laughs> what, what is that? I mean, I've heard the term, but I thought that was just professors, right? And so that always intrigued me, not because I didn't want to work, but I was like, wow, what, how cool would it be? Just take a step back for a little bit. And so, you know, kind of 2015, there started to be some things happening in, in the organization. Mm-hmm. Unilever. I knew that the time was, was coming. Um, and so we were prepared for it, but Unilever also just does a phenomenal job of taking care of their people. And, and they understand that people really are the only sustainable advantage. And so, so I was fortunate when, when I left to, to have a really good exit, uh, you know, package and, you know, I sat down and, and talked to my wife and said, I'm going to take a hundred days off. I'm not going to do anything. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, I, again, kind of going back to the scenario planning, you say, I'm, I'm, I know what the worst case scenario is. I mean, not mm-hmm. worse, but I can go get a job as a sales leader in a lot of different companies. I've got a lot of value to add. Um, but I don't know that that's what I want to do. And, mm-hmm. and if I don't stop, you know, for a little bit and think about it, um, I won't know. And so, you know, very glamorous taking a hundred days off in the dead of winter in Chicago. We went on a lot of very <laughs> icy cold walks, you know, around our little local park, but it was great. Um, and, and, you know, I, I really enjoyed that, you know, time and, and it was, um, yeah, it was, it was pivotal. And then, you know, after a hundred days, I started searching and, and, you know, ultimately, as often as the case, a, a, a very old connection who I knew in Dallas when I was a DSR and a, a sales rep, you know, called me up one day and we were talking about an, an opportunity. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's when that one's going to work out. It's like, yeah, you're probably right. He's like, you ever thought about moving to Idaho? And and I thought, you know, <laughs> I've, I've lived in a lot of places and, and, you know, not, not everyone would I move back to, but every one of them has been, you know, interesting and, and, and has, has presented us as a family and me as a person with new challenges. And so, Kind of started talking and and uh, you know ultimately that led you know a couple months later to uh, to the job I have now at, at Idaho which is um, you know leading the food service business and on the executive team and um, it's been a great ride it's it's a uh, you know I, I 
I'd done some homework and I thought about private equity and I'd interviewed with a, a few companies that you know were private equity held and um, and I had some friends that were in, you know doing very well in private equity and and uh, you know I, I can't say that that's not the right place for me it just nothing ever worked out and and now upon kind of hindsight I'm I'm glad that it didn't um, right. you know, we're a privately held company and you know there's challenges there too but but there's a lot of opportunity um, that I have on this side of the business you know one in particular is there's there's just a a long-term view of the business and, mm-hmm. and we get to do a lot of things, you know, that are, are based in, in the long-term value we're creating for, for the company. And, and I'll give you an example. When COVID hit, you know, we, I came in to, to, to fix the, fix the business and, and get it to, to being a, a performing part of, of Idaho and overall, our retail business is one of the top success stories in branded food in the last 20 years. I mean, you can mm-hmm. go check that. It's it's unbelievable. And we really needed a second growth vehicle. Um, and so I came in to, to do that. And when COVID hit, you know, obviously um, there was a there was a, a little bit of an inflection point there. And, um, <laughs> the good news is we had a couple year track record of doing some good things. And, you know, I went to the to the to the board and I said, look, you know, here's what a typical large company with a lot of line items would do. And we can do that. And I've, I've got experience doing that. It's not fun. It's, you know, it, and we'll take care of people, but I don't think that's the right thing for the business in the long term, you know, or here's what I promise you we will do. I said, we will get together as a team. We will do things we've never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, we will develop ourselves as uh, individuals, as people will uncover every rock. And when we come out of the pandemic, we will exit faster than anybody else. Um, and they said, you know what? We, we believe you've got a good team. Um, so yeah, just manage the business. Don't, you know, don't, don't erode any more value, but make sure you're adding value when you came out. And, you know, we, we've done a great job and, and we've been beating the market, you know, basically every since, ever since. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, so, so that's been really gratifying, you know, to when you can put out a real business case and you're just a couple layers removed from the owners of the company and they can look you in the eye and say, yeah, you know, go for it. So Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's got to feel good. Um, when you approach your board, what are some of the things that when, when you're building out your strategy, what are some of the things that you look at and build into the strategy? Sure. You know, it, it's it's interesting. Our business is a single category, right? You know, we're in potatoes and, and um, we're in, we call fresh truck potatoes because they're a unique technology. And that's quite different, you know, than selling 10 or 15 brands with a breadth of portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so for us, you know, innovation is, is reasonably focused around, um, you know, potatoes and, and, and the formats you can deliver in, in, in the way that we have. And so it's really about helping the board understand where the opportunity is. And, and now there's even more opportunity than ever, at least in, in our, our product formatting category, um, because of all the labor challenges and everything else. And so um, I actually heard, uh, um, I listened to one of the podcasts and, and somebody was talking about explaining food service, you know, to people. And I, I'll mm-hmm. have to send you a diagram. I have this great diagram that I got from a consultant and I'll have to give him credit at some point. I can't remember where it was, but it's basically just a spider web that describes food service, sure. right? I mean, you've got GPOs and buying groups and, and, and it's so true that you have to explain that almost on a daily basis to mm-hmm. companies that are retail led. And it's not because they don't want to understand it. It's just because their route to market is very clear and very direct and, right. and food service isn't that way. And so a lot of what we do is try to help them understand the value we're adding um, oftentimes is in a 
more efficient route to market or go to market to, to get to the ultimate user, which is the operator. And, and so um, that's, that's what a lot of our strategy development looks like. And um, I love it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's great because, you know, there are going back to the whole idea of being a privately held company. I mean, the, the systems that we've invested in to give us data that really nobody else has, at mm. least in my experience in food service has been critical because that, you know, and when you're from a retail mindset, you look at things in category management and everything is known and, and all those kind of things. And, you know, we're not there in food service, but we're certainly approaching, um, you know, a, a pretty critical moment where we've got, we have, mo- we have, we know more than we don't know um, by a significant margin. And that's, you know, that's important. So a lot of my time with the board is, is spent talking about that. I've got to be careful on two fronts. Um, I've got to be careful that I bring and, and I hire in talent that has large company um, sort of process and development, but that we don't weigh down our current company with all that unnecessary process, right? And because and mm-hmm. process tends to breed process. And so going back to the simplicity thing is, is really important. The other thing we've got to be really careful of is, you know, we are who we are. We're Idahoan. That, that implies a lot of things, um, you know, besides just the fact that we're in Idaho, we are a potato company and, you know, it doesn't mean that never will we not do X, Y, Z, but we've also got to be really smart um, and, and think about that. And um, I think a lot of people get out over their skis and chase kind of the shiny light. So it's kind of that balance um, sure. of not doing that. So. I, I have so many questions. I mean, you, you, you've got just some great nuggets here. Um Let's go back to, so you said when you bring in people that you're looking for people who have potentially big company experience. What do you mean by that? And what does that look like when somebody has big company experience? Well, and maybe that's a, so to come back, it's, it's people, like I said earlier, I think people are the only sustainable advantage, right? And so mm-hmm. you've got to make sure that you have a mix of experience and, and we have a wealth of smaller company um, experience in our company. And so you've got to be really choiceful about bringing in people with um, diverse skill sets or unique skill sets that you wouldn't naturally find, you know, here in the building. We're, we're located in Idaho Falls, Idaho, which is, you know, on the eastern side of, of Idaho. It's a town of about, it's a metro area, probably about 150,000. And so there's some great things about that. But for example, there's not a whole lot of food service marketeers in Idaho Falls. Um, just not, not the case, you know, Chicago, <laughs> yes, Denver, yes, et cetera. And so when you're looking to bring in, you know, bigger company experience is kind of the word that I, that I use. It's, it's really about somebody who's seen big process and who's seen um, all the advantages that category and customer channel management, you know, have in, in the Kellogg's and Unilever and P&G world, but then be able to also see how do I apply that in a much smaller microcosm and it can be done. So you're kind of looking for a balance of, Somebody that has that experience, but also is excited about doing things, you know, differently um, and, and applying that. Um, one of the things we talk about a lot is the concept of the fishbowl, right? Okay. You know, you know, goldfish only grow as large as their fishbowl. You know, those there's all sorts of analogies, and I'll get all of them wrong. But at the end of the day, we all operate in sort of this, you know, environment that's somebody else or, or the external has painted for us. And so, one of the things we talk about is, you know, our we are not the the fishbowl of large CPG, where four to six percent growth is good, um, you know, six percent is a great year, and and not because that's not good, it's because it doesn't have to be good. Um, you know, we especially in, in where we are today, we have so much more potential than that, 
And if we lock ourselves into the sort of fishbowl of, you know, the, the typical food service growth, well, then we would be growing at four or 5%, what that's the industry growth projection this year, right? And that's dollars, right. that's not pounds, right? right? So that's not real. Um, so, you know, there's, there's we, we talk about trying to find the right balance of somebody who has that experience, but also then is ready to kind of break out of the chains and apply it in a different way. So I don't know if that answered your question. But yeah, no, it, it totally did. Um, so when you're building the Idahoan food service arm, is it more important to you to find the right person or is it more important to have the right system for that person to come in and, and be successful in? Uh, yes, both. Culture isn't isn't a plug and play thing, right? If, mm-hmm. if you're trying to maintain a culture, right, a culture of excellence, you know, whatever you want to call it, and you're just adding what you have today, then you're you're already kind of on the way down, right? You're already sort of you know, you've heard the, the the expression: if you're green, you're growing; if you're ripe, you're rotten, right? And so you're looking for that skill set, but you're also wanting that to be additive in terms of the systems that you have and and take away computer systems, but just the way you approach things. And so, look, I think I've got some good ideas from years of doing things the way I've done them. But I also have a group of really bright people who are challenging me on a constant basis. Why, you know, and 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 it's mm-hmm. not just you know newer people in the organization. I need all of my people and my team um, to challenge me because you know my my knowledge is you know based on what it's been. And yes, I get new experience as well. But um, you know, you need that challenge. And so so the people are really really important. But they're important because of the skill set they bring in, also the the additive nature to the culture, or the you know even the multiplicative nature to the culture. And then in terms of systems, systems are just an enabler. Um, mm-hmm. And and you know we have a great system here, but more importantly, we have a great person that's in charge of taking that system and making sure that everything we do to it, everything we add to it, everything we take away from it, because we do a lot of that too makes it easier for our team to execute. I had the um, privilege, scars, whatever you want to call them, to, in my last role with uh, with Unilever, to roll out a massive CRM system. And um, it's, a, it's a story of a typical, you know, sort of large company challenge, right? All the right intent, all the right people, all the right investment, all those things. And ultimately, it failed because it got so disconnected from reality of what we needed. Fortunately, unfortunately, I, I haven't been there to see. I, I understand it's working better today, but it was, it was just a, it was way over engineered for what it needed to be, and 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 ultimately, for many years, caused a lot of work that was just work and wasn't really around execution. And so when we came here and said, "What do we want to do?" We said, "Well, first of all, we're going to make sure that every single day the system serves the strategy." And the strategy serve the people to make the execution easier. And so, again, a little bit of a roundabout answer, but the systems are important. The systems are just enablers, sure. but they can certainly be massive detractors if if you don't get them right. So, yeah, definitely. I notice, you know, I have friends outside of the food service industry who are entrepreneurs or on their on their own business, and a lot of times people, I think they prioritize finding the right people, but they don't necessarily have the right system for when those people come in, and then those people have just way too much latitude or maybe too much, uh, they don't have enough direction or whatever it may be. And those people kind of get lost. And then, you know, are you really moving the the ball down the field? You mentioned that you have a person that's in charge of systems. 
What is kind of their role and responsibilities on, on let's just say, a daily basis? Sure. And, and let me tag on to what you said before I answer that question, because yeah. in terms of, because I think you're also using systems in terms of sort of strategy, right? And, and how we mm-hmm. execute it. And that's one thing I think we've done really well, going back to simplicity. We have a very simple focus primarily on the operator. We have great distributor partners that we have a lot of resource around. But at the end of the day, our selling arm is really focused on operators. And so everything we do is about that singular message. And there's, you know, there's some parameters within that, but it's really, really system oriented in that in that way. And then to, to answer your question, the I had a function in my previous role at Unilever called business excellence. And I actually was in a role like that early on when I first moved to Chicago called sales operations, which is what most people, you know, call, call that, that role. And one of the things I realized in that role was it became this behemoth that was self-serving, right? Going back to the whole idea of you add process, which then adds more process, which requires more. And so one of the things we were able to do, and quite honestly, why I got the job is I, I pitched the idea of what, why do we need 20 people in this department when maybe three or four will do, redeploy the 20 somewhere else. And so from that time, it's always been about sales operations never felt right. It was more about sales enablement. And ultimately, we started to call it business excellence because what business excellence does is make sure that the internal workings of the organization, whether it be systems, processes, you know, all those kinds of things, again, serve our sales team so that they can be more efficient and more effective. And so Brandy, who runs business excellence for us, I mean, she really is tasked with looking at our system and how do we make it better and how do we make it simpler and how do we make it easier and how do we make it quite honestly more encompassing. One of the things I learned, you know, in the rollout of that massive system was if you call it CRM, that's what it's going to be. And it's only ever going to be that. And so we really started to use the, the idea around business system because when we implemented the CRM element of it, it was never for just that part. It was going to be the basis of a trade system and a tracking system and an engagement system and a campaign system. And now today, it's all of those things. And we still have miles to go, but it's one singular system. And it's called, you know, we call it the food service business system. Um, we actually named it Spud Hub. So that's actually one of our team named it Spud Hub. So, um, you know, that's that's how integral it is to what we do. But that's what Brandy's role is. And that's what Business Excellence role is, is to make sure that um, nothing we're doing internally is causing our team to slip up. Now, let me be honest. Not everybody loves systems. Not every salesperson loves systems. Um, you know, there's all flavors and stripes of us, right? And so, you know, her job also, even though she wouldn't want to admit it, is also a sales job, right? She's a champion of the of the system. And we spend a lot of time trying to help people understand how it'll be easier. You know, one of the decisions we made early on was this will be a system that people can use on laptops, they can use on a mobile device, whether it's an iPad or it's a phone, and it will have just as much functionality all the way across. And what's funny is, and I would have never picked this, the people that use it on their phones are Absolutely not the people that I would have thought. The people that use it on their computers are not the ones and the people that use it on their iPads. So, you know, but they all use it. And and so that's that's great. So I love that. And you know, looking at I, I've seen some of your, you know, your sales presentations, the way you train your sales team, it's uh, in a way almost formulaic. So whether you're standing in San Francisco or 
you know, some it, in New York, it the, your sales team has the same tools and the similar type message to be successful. And I think that goes a long way, especially when you're dealing with, you know, your own direct sales team and then also broker networks where, you know, you may have hundreds of people that are sell- out selling on your behalf at any given time. You mentioned that investments, you, you make these investments in these systems and then those systems in return give you data. What is some of the data that you look at to make decisions? I mean, ultimately, the most important data, it's, it's no different than would it be in a retail environment. The more I know about the person that uses our product, um, the better off, the more successful that we're ultimately going to be. And so for us, it's all around end user data, operator data. Um, and we work really hard with our, you know, our distributor partners and our, our corporate partners, our GPO partners, to make sure we have access to that so that you know, we can employ, um, deploy our, our um, resources in the most efficient way. Um, you know, of course, it informs innovation and, and all those kinds of things. But, but ultimately, we're trying to spot um, patterns of usage or non-usage or voids. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I think that's been an unlock for us is we have to be consistent in the way we treat and access and manage that data over time. I think another challenge when you work in larger environments is, you know, there's new leadership or there's new direction or whatever, and it comes in and it never comes in at the right time. And so you're constantly reinventing something. And, you know, look, we, we rolled out CRM, our CRM system, four months after I arrived here. We didn't roll out another piece of that business for another two years. And then we implemented trade. And then we haven't, we didn't really roll out anything else major. In fact, we haven't rolled out anything else major beyond that other than small enhancements. And so, while the data you're after is important, the way you treat it and look at it consistently over time is just as, if not more important, because otherwise it becomes kind of the flavor of the month. And again, that that happens a lot. And then you never really get to the value of the basic data you have. Um, I'm shocked still at the amount of data that companies purchase. And we try to be really focused and, and mm-hmm. purchase very, very limited data not because it's not all good. I mean, I can name all the companies and they all do a great job. Mm-hmm. I just can't use it all. Um, and, right. you know, that takes away from investment I can make in other places. So, Sure. Now that we're here in 2023, you know, there's still COVID going on a little bit, but it's not to the degree, obviously, it was in 2020. What are some of the goals that you're pursuing now here today? Sure. I mean, it, you know, we're fortunate again in that the type of product we have, you know, sort of in that speed scratch environment, those kind of things really resonates, you know, more and more. And, and you know, there's systemic change in the in the restaurant business coming out of COVID, right? And, and it will forever, you know, alter or not alter, it already has. It's, it's changed the trajectory of food service. And so we just have to be really, really sharp and simple in our message about evangelizing that opportunity with, with our type of product. And, and what we're constantly, you know, encouraged by is, you know, just the reaction we get on, on the quality that it is, which is great. Again, I, mean, I wouldn't be here going back to my very earliest comment around selling quality. But of course, you know, there's some perceptions around, you know, different things. I think um, operators obviously had to be much more open to a lot of different things we all did during COVID. So that's helped. Um, but it's really just carrying that message and, and just being sharper on execution. Uh, you know, one of the coolest things that I've gotten to do in five years is to execute the same strategy and sharpen it every year mm-hmm. and really look out into the future and go, all we have to do is 
be smart enough to look at ourselves from an external you know viewpoint but just keep sharpening this strategy and so far i haven't seen anything that would radically alter what we do and that's been and what a blessing that is because you just don't you know often often get that in in other environments and so um really nick it's just continuing to be better and better and better. I mean, you know, growth presents opportunity, but it presents challenge as well. And so as we get bigger, we have to kind of think about what we would do differently or, you know, would we add resource and how and where, but those are, you know, those, those won't take us away from our core kind of responsibility and, and how we execute. So you mentioned that, you know, you, you always have a drive and, and want to continue to grow your skill set. Since you joined Idahoan back in 2017, what is maybe a new belief, a behavior, or habit that has most improved your business acumen? Sure. I think probably the thing, and this this may have to do with age a little bit as well, um, and it's <laughs> in, in a good and bad way, is I've had to be more open to my own shortcomings, right? And and not that I haven't believed. I mean, you know, we all have a little bit of pride in those kind of things, but but recognizing when I say shortcomings, it's also I don't have knowledge in areas of certain things, and you know that, that others do, and that's not just an age thing. Again, that goes back to all the, the diversity of thought piece, and so really being much more open and even seeking out and, and making sure I'm, I'm staying in tune. And, and maybe, maybe if it's not me personally, having a team member come present about something you know that they they believe or understand, and, and that would be a blind spot for me. The other thing I would say that, and again, maybe it's because I'm I'm aging, but the whole authenticity piece, I've seen, I mean, I've never, I don't think I've ever been one really to be somebody other than who I am. Um, it was, uh, I even took a little bit of pride in being the only Texan in the office in Rotterdam. So that was kind of fun, <laughs> but, um, but I, I've always been sort of an open book and, and, but I've also seen that pay a lot of dividends and particularly in COVID, you know, and when, when you've got a, you know, look a team in the eye and say, guys, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I don't even know if our, you know, company will exist or, or certainly not our company, but our side of the company. And, and I know, you know, in your shoes and, and many others, that was a common discussion. But it also, I think, built that trust and, and you know, mm-hmm. just kind of doubles down on the whole idea of, of authenticity and, and, you know, that being an important piece. You know, I think the other thing is, is, is again, and this is why I ultimately made the the decision, you know, in in, in 2017, well, not decision, but but left Unilever in 2017, and then moved to Idaho in 2018. Was I've got to keep growing and doing different things. So there's initiatives I'm working on now within Idaho, and that I've never thought I would have been working on before. Um, some cool different, you know, whether it's innovation or whether it's working with our you know our larger corporate entity. Just some stuff that I haven't gotten to, to be exposed to, and and. Uh, you know, I'm closer to supply chain and finance than I've ever been in my career. And, you know, those are not backgrounds of mine, um, you know, and so that's been a really great learning as well. So just, I mean, every day is still a learning curve. You know, I'd, I'd say the other thing kind of as the cap and that's important is, um, and I'm learning this too, is as your career evolves and as your family dynamic evolves, you also evolve, right? And, and so, you know, some of the things I'm learning now are on a family perspective and how that, you know, how that's changing as well as, as my kids get up and, and, you know, get out of the workforce. Those are fun conversations to talk to my kids that are in the workforce. Um, you know, but then there's other things too, uh, just about the relationship that I have um, with my family. And, and so again, I think that all, I've always been a person that, that has felt like, and it's, you know, always a balance you're working on, but 
all of it's got to be in balance or none of it's in balance. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's a, that's a constant. When you look back on your career, going back to, you know, your early days of busing tables, is there anything that you would do over or do differently? I would have studied more in college. Um, <laughs> that uh, I'm sure a number of people will chuckle at that one. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've never been one to dwell on the past. I'm, I'm pretty resilient in the fact that, you know, I can, I can see what happened if it's good, bad or whatever, and I can move on to the next piece. So I, I think resilience is, is really important. There's a lot of things that are out of your control and no matter where you are, what level you're at. I mean, how many, who would want to be in, you know, the CEO of Cisco US Foods when COVID happened, right? I mean, it doesn't matter, right? So there's lots of stuff that's out of your control. So the, to the extent that you can, not worry about that that will make you better and and help you to to grow faster and take care of you know your team and your people and your company better so i, I don't know that i would do that differently but you know i think that's really important there's a actually there's a good story that's there that, that really brought this home for me so i love the fact that people think i'm this successful you know when i came through sales and have done many things since then but people think i'm this great salesperson, and i i love to tell the story about my first true sales job um, that I got fired from. And what's even better about that is um, it was selling books door to door one summer and it's a straight commission job. So how many people do you know that get fired from a straight commission job? <laughs> um, and, and what was interesting about that and, and the great story there is that I wasn't going to quit. I, there was no way I was going to quit, even though I literally, I had sold one thing working 10 hours or 12 hours a day, six days a week in like eight weeks, one. And that was actually returned. So I'd sold nothing. Um, and my manager came to me and said, Craig, you're a great guy. You're not going to be successful at this. And he said, and that's okay. He said, but you're the kind of guy that's going to continue to bang your head against the wall. But every time you walk up to the door, you know, you're not making a sale and you're not going to make one. And he said, go home. I mean, you're going to be successful at something else. I know you are. And I'm like, okay, whatever. You just don't want to have any more conversations with me. And, and the reason I tell that story is, and I told the story a lot, so anybody who hears this will recognize that story, is a couple of things. Not all of us are in the right role at the right time with the right product, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, and as leaders, we have a huge responsibility to have those conversations sometime because a lot of times that lack of perfect sort of circle doesn't exist and it won't in the current role that that person is in. And if you as a leader aren't, courageous enough to have that conversation, you're just perpetuating a problem for your company, but for that person as well. Mm -hmm. And so that taught me a lot. And even though I was the recipient of that tough conversation, I would say that and a couple other things that happened early in my career helped me really understand that I'm not having this tough conversation because I'm a tough guy and all that. I'm having it because it's mm -hmm. the right thing to do. Um, and ultimately, I believe truly in my heart of hearts that it will help you know whoever's on the other side of that to get to a better place, whether it's with this company or, you know, with another company. And, you know, by and large, it's funny, there's a, a couple of people I know that are wildly successful in other areas that just wasn't the right spot for them when they were with, you know, whoever. So totally. And hey, what advice would you give to a smart driven college student about to enter into the quote unquote, the real world? <laughs> in food service specifically or, or anywhere? Um, just, and I've just given, in general, just from your experience. Well, I've given that to, to, to two sons now at this point, and, and hopefully they'll do okay. Um, you know, I would say learn as much as you can early on. You know, that if there was something, you know, I would do different, I guess, going back to your earlier question, I, I would have 
put myself in a position to be in more of a sort of a generalist role in a, in a large company because you learn so many things, you know, whether it's a consultancy or, you know, a large FMCG company or bank or whatever. I think you you just get to be exposed to so many more things. And so, you know, you should really be after knowledge is one thing. But the other thing is I really think I benefited a huge amount by having a leadership role right out of college. You know, 60 employees, you know, most of whom, you know, very, again, QSR environment, right? But having to deal with all those problems that weren't my own did two things. It took the focus off me because I had to really understand what their problems were and they're vastly different than mine. And I had to be able to talk to them about it. And so, you know, managing those types of situations early on, I think is really, really important. And I don't fault people that are in individual contributor roles because I think those are huge. But if you want to be in a leadership role, I mean, you have a massive responsibility and opportunity to really multiply, you know, your impact. And so the quicker you can get um, those kinds of experiences, and by the way, there's lots of scars that go with them. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're definitely fun and, and sometimes ugly. You're just a better person for it, right? I mean, you know, those, those life scars and those, those work scars are, are really, really important. So Definitely. I remember when I, when I first came out of college and my dad and I, we started our company together and I was sitting there sending emails and text messages, trying to get appointments to go sell what we had at the time. And he's like, one thing they don't teach you in college is how to talk to adults. You got to pick up the phone. You got to get out there face to face. That's the only way you're going to learn. And it's kind of similar to maybe what you're saying a little bit, uh, especially when it comes to a leadership role. You got to be, it's almost becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable, you know, and, and, and learning and soaking up as much as you can and, and definitely having your bumps and bruises along the way. Absolutely. Well said. Looking far into the future, when you reflect back on your career or, or even your personal life, what is something that you want to be remembered for? I want to be remembered first as a great husband and a fantastic father. I have certainly got bumps and bruises and still accumulating, you know, from, from the mistakes I made, but, um, and have made, but that's what I want to be known for first, you know, and, and I hope by extension of that, you know, there's a, an authenticity that, you know, people will have seen around my leadership and that hopefully somewhere, you know, somebody will have benefited from that and not just personally, but then that they could impact other people. And, and, um, you know, there's, there's just so many great leaders that you can see and, and, you know, learn from, but I, there's this whole host of, of people that are managing teams of five and 10 and 20 and, you know, in mid-level and, and even senior roles that you never hear about. And, and those are the operational people that are truly impacting, you know, lots of lives because they're close in proximity on a daily basis. So I hope, you know, by virtue of my journey that I've been able to do that as well. So, you know, it's kind of funny when I started this, podcast journey, if you will. I wanted to help others in the food service industry, but I didn't realize the amount of self-discovery and self-learning that I'd learned through doing these conversations. And I just have to say that in this hour or however long conversation we've had, I've, I've learned a lot. And there's so many pertinent nuggets that you gave today. So I really appreciate you joining me here on the podcast. And you know, maybe we'll do it again in the future. And again, thank you so much for being an open book. And I I think you had just incredible feedback and nuggets today. So thank you so much. Nick, thanks for having me. And thanks for doing what you're doing. Um, It's great to see this. And I'm looking forward to continue to learn from from your uh, subsequent guests. So thanks very much. Thank you, Craig. 